See, this is the real secret of life. To be completely engaged with what you're doing in the here and now. And instead of calling it work, realize that this is play. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective Australia. I'm Jim Dooner. And I'm Mac Lyon. We're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. This week, I'm back again with Tom from Breath Performance to explore the concept of Morton's Neuroma. So what it is, why it happens, and what you can do about it based on the current research and our experience with our physio clients. If you're struggling to make progress in your rehab, please feel free to reach out as we can either help you directly with our online consultations or we can point you in the right direction of other practitioners or resources that can help you. And this week's episode is also brought to you by our brand new TFC community. It's a completely free online space that we like to think of as a private community hall for humans to learn, connect, share, inspire, and support one another on the journey to foot freedom without the usual distractions of social media. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training, and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function, and explore your body's potential. To join us, just head to thefootcollective.com, and you'll find the link in our show notes as well. All right, so we've got an interesting one this week. Not that they're all not say, interesting. What about the rest of them? They're all pretty, pretty interesting. <laughs> they're all interesting. Um, and Morton's neuroma is also a very common one, which is part of why we're doing it early on the, on the list. This is our first one for, for 2023, first exploring a, a pathology for 2023. But it's interesting because the name itself is a bit of a misnomer. Oh, Mr. Do- Dr. Morton. <laughs> so, Tom, tell me, tell me about... Morton, Morton and neuroma. Well, well, I'll be completely frank. I was unaware of the history of Morton's neuroma until really looking into Morton's neuroma. So a little bit of learning for myself, which has been good. Um, but Dr. Morton, couldn't find his first name. No idea what his first name was. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. He's just Dr. Morton. <laughs> he, um, he first sort of described the what we know to be the pathology today back in 1876. So wow. that's what, 150 years almost cracking backwards. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite a lot. Um, and the biggest thing is, and probably the, the misnomer here is it's not really what you'd define as a neuroma. And I think you and I were talking before we, we jumped on, like you think neuroma, you think like cancer in mm, that oma. Like a tumor. Yeah. yeah. Um, but essentially to make sure people understand Morton is the guy's last name. Neuroma just means some non-cancerous slash benign tumor that tends to grow from the fibrous coverings of a nerve. And I think that's a really good baseline to understand because that often happens when you have sort of some disorganized or some weird growth of uh, nerve cells or like uh, nerve cells around a nerve injury. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we actually talk about Morton's neuroma in terms of what it is, it's actually just the swelling of a nerve and the scar tissue slash, you know, the disorganization of tissue around an injury. And what the most common cause tends to be is compression. You know, it's not really like it's um, always going to be cutting it or really crushing it. But it's mostly that compression rubbing that seems to call this thing called Morton's neuroma. Mm. And the other way of putting it, um, it gets more technical, but in a digital nerve um, or metatarsalgia, like other words that have been thrown out for it. But yeah, the term Morton's neuroma, it's not really a neuroma. It's not technically a neuroma. Yeah. And 
Interdigital neuroma there is interdigital. It just means in between your digits as in your toes. Um, your fingers are also digits, but obviously we're talking about the feet here. Um, and we're not talking about hands on a foot podcast. No. <laughs> and metatarsalgia. Alga just means pain. And metatars obviously is referring to the metatarsals, which are those bones in your feet that run along into your digits or into your phalanges which probably helps people explain like if you haven't had a morton's neuroma where you get that sort of pain sensation it's not in your toes and it's not like back at the ankle it's somewhere in between there and if you sort of take where your toe knuckles are back to your ankle you're either going to be on your metatarsals or the littler bones that are called the tarsals that make joints with the metatarsals Mm -hmm. and again probably just to be super specific uh, morton's neuroma technically is between the third and fourth metatarsal so between the third and fourth toe yeah and the other fun fact i found out there's names for the other ones who would have thought yeah should we should we breeze through those oh you want to try and pronounce them there oh i should have i should have brushed up on the pronunciation but it's (laughs) i guess it's hoiter hoiter neuroma hauser neuroma isolin's neuroma Mm. um Someone can correct me. Yeah, I'm <laughs> correct sure us. someone's got better pronunciation it, than us. Either way, it's not. I mean, it's not so important what the names really are. It's just like this similar symptoms, but in different areas of the foot, as in literally just between different digits. Um, it's a surprise that Morton just didn't name all of them. Yeah, really. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder where that history comes from. Yeah, we we uh, maybe that's something we can look into mm. further. Um, Cool. So, any relevant anatomy, physiology related to Morton's neuroma? Probably the most interesting part of the anatomy, I, I think, is that when you look into the anatomy of the foot, and particularly you're looking at, the, say, the space between those metatarsal bones, so those long bones, you find the space between two and three and three and four to be less than normally between one and two or your fourth and fifth, which yeah. is exactly where Morton's neuroma tends to occur. So maybe that's why... That's it, why it's more common. It's, it, it's more common to have, and that's why it's probably become more propagated within literature or across people having the problem. It's just anatomically, there is less space in there. Yeah, And I think, again, to go back, it's not a benign tumor that's on there. This is just a compression, irritation of the nerve, um, which we'll get into some of the mechanical reasons why it can happen with your walking and movement. But that, in essence, is you can irritate a nerve in so many different ways. Could, you could rub the hell out of it. You could get yeah. other problems around the area, which can <coughs> cause it to get inflamed and have the uh, thickening or changing of tissue around there as well. But in essence, it's just really that third, fourth nerve. Sure. Yeah, and I guess it it makes sense that, like you said, that's the area with the least amount of space anyway. And so it's most susceptible to compression. And it makes sense that it's really common because most of society, especially, I guess, modern Western society, tends to wear shoes that are narrow, which... Um, we might as well just cover right now. It's something we cover in pretty much every, every podcast. Um, but there's really no benefit to having narrow shoes. Um, and a big reason for that is because of the way it squishes your toes together, which affects your balance, but also makes you more prone to things like bunions and also other foot problems. Other foot problems. And that's like the fact there is like you know, people with Morton's neuroma, if you just get them out of the shoe one in three people have the symptoms alleviated entirely. So that's 33%. And all that is, is you getting out of that shoe. 
Yeah. Like that's the quickest fix you could possibly have. Now, obviously not for everyone, but for a third of people, that's pretty remarkable. That is pretty remarkable. And we'll, we'll, I guess we'll explore all the different treatments as well um, in, in a second. But then, so narrow shoes are probably one of the biggest contributing factors. Um, what else? Um, well, interestingly enough, when you look at um, just the shoes in general, right, you've women's technically the high heels, the men's dress shoes. The reason it happens is mostly the compression. But again, what we know about the way those shoes mm. are, because you've got the wedge at the back for the dress shoe or you've got the heel for the high heel, you're going to be putting more pressure down at the front of that foot. Yeah. And that is going to be causing more problem into the area that you actually get the Morton's neuroma. Because as, as we know, when the one of the most painful things when you have it is just pushing off. Yeah. And that push-off is you putting pressure through the specific point of your foot that will light up and get sore. And I think that's something to be noted of. Like, we're not just against narrow shoes by themselves. It's also, if you start adding, like, unnatural wedges for prolonged periods of time and repetitively, you're just, again, going to be loading the same spot. And it doesn't have a lot of room to move. It's not a lot of mm. uh, variability in its ability to move. So... I think that's an important point to note on with the, the narrow shoes. Yeah. And probably also important to note that do, the dose makes the poison. Like mm. if you're just wearing narrow shoes for an hour or something, mm. uh, or like a couple of, like one event, but the rest of the time you're barefoot or wearing wide toe box shoes, it's probably not going to give you Morton's neuroma. No. no. Um, uh, someone commented on one of the posts recently about how we're being, um, we're spreading fear by saying narrow pointy shoes can cause issues. And in some sense, I can see where they're coming from in that it's, it's important to note that, yeah, it's, it's not like you can just wear narrow shoes once. Generally, it might happen to some people, but generally you, your feet should be strong and resilient enough um, to handle about in narrow pointy shoes. It's probably not optimal for them. Um, but if it's, it's really the prolonged exposure where, which a lot of people are getting, um, where they're putting high heels on to go to work and they're sort of strapped into this one position for eight hours a day, sometimes more. And they're walking around a lot, um, high heels, dress shoes, but even as we've discussed on the podcast before, even most modern running shoes, um, and even shoes that are sort of podiatrist, uh, designed or recommended can end up with a tend to have a heel and uh, a narrow toe box as well so it's it's just good to be aware of that it's not only the fashionable shoes but it's it's often the shoes that get touted as healthy good shoes I, th I mean like you said I see the point like it's not trying to fear monger around these shoes I think it's the, the best way to put it is trying to educate people on if you repetitively wear those those shoes and only those shoes and always keep your feet in a narrow environment for a long period of time, there's a consequence to that. Yeah. And again, it's like risk reward. The trade-off for you is you might look better personally or you might like the aesthetic of the shoe. That's totally fine. We're not saying that you shouldn't wear that. It's entirely a personal choice, right? But there is going to be a consequence to everything that we do. And that's just one of them, you know, we often are saying that the shoes are contributing to these uh, foot pathologies that we see in clinic and then uh, you know around the world. If we were to change that, it seems to have quite a good benefit the other way. And like a really interesting point there is like you know men and women. Like if you're at work, for example, and you're someone who is required to wear a dress shoe, if you are at a desk or you're sitting on the ground or whatever your practice is between meetings or something, 
there's no reason to have the shoe on. Mm. Like you can take the shoe off during that period, put it on for the meeting, put it on for the walk. That will still be better than having it on the entire day. Yeah. I think like it's just trying to spread the awareness of there are other options as well than just wearing these shoes that have been sort of ingrained into society. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if you're completely married to the idea of wearing these fashionable pointy heeled shoes, then yeah, just be smart and take them off whenever you're not actually needing to present with them. Um, or make the call to go against the grain and look after your foot health and your movement health and wear shoes that don't squish your toes together. Mm. Um, which, uh, easier said than done. (laughs) Definitely. But yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it is, it's a, can be a big decision to go against the grain so much because we are social animals and we feel, um, you know, that there's a primal instinct to protect your place in the social hierarchy and you don't want to be the one who has weird looking clown shoes. Um, I say, that's how I felt when I first ever put them on. It was a very strange experience because <laughs> everyone around you, like in our setting, are often wearing either dress shoes or like ASICs or something that, uh, you know, again, the bulkier shoe. And when you change the shoe, it is a talking point. Yeah. It will for good or bad reasons or however you want to look at it will create a talking point yeah so you have to be pretty solid in your decision of like i'm i'm prioritizing my health and you know sometimes sometimes it takes these types of conditions like morton's neuroma or you start developing a bunion or you start you end up having some problem with your feet that makes you go okay now i have to prioritize it but um you know, if you're listening to this and you don't have Morton's neuroma, now's the perfect time to prevent it <laughs> through these strategies all about as well. Prevention. Yeah. Um, so, and the other thing to note there, as I kind of alluded to, a lot of running shoes, modern running shoes, or just modern sneakers, end in that point, and that's that's even if they're classified or marketed as wide or neutral or neutral. <laughs> yeah. So wide shoes don't necessarily mean wide toe box the key is what we like to refer to it now is foot shaped so it but it needs to have a wide toe box as in the the line of the big toe is completely straight and then the rest of the toe box kind of fans out in a in a curve um but it it can't be widest at the ball of the foot and then end in a sort of it doesn't even have to be pointy but it can't it can't be widest at the ball of the foot because that means it is still squishing your toes together to some degree. Mm. Yeah. Well said. Cool. Yeah. So that's uh, the footwear part. That that, causes, that's right? the footwear. So what else are we looking at in terms of contributing factors? I'm pretty sure we're going to say this almost every week, but <laughs> increased levels of pronation or mm-hmm. increased levels of supination uh, seem <clears> to <throat> contribute to the Morton's neuroma. And when you look at both of them, it's sort of, um, they both do it in different ways. So I think when you look at when someone has more pronation through the middle part of their foot than, you know, say someone who doesn't have the problem, you're just going to find it changes the space. It, you're going to change the space between the third and fourth metatarsal, which already has the least amount of space. And again, if that's the... Most people who do have a lot of pronation through their foot and they don't often have the option to go the other way as much. So again, it's just loading in one pattern. I think that's the biggest key, isn't yeah. it? It's being stuck in pronation, whether that's because you, you just don't have the muscular control or your, you know, your joints are rigid in that, in that um, movement or position uh, or stuck in supination. And I guess for those who um, 
maybe aren't familiar with those terms. Most people tend to be, but in case you're not, pronation is, you can visualize it as like the flattening of your arch or your foot rolling inward. Um, and supination is like the lifting or the opposite movement, um, lifting up basically. And that's the same thing. Once you go up into more of that arched foot, it's the same thing. It's just, it's rigid. It's going yeah. to reduce space. So yeah, so I think, you, need, you need access to both. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. they're going to keep popping up for almost all conditions from yeah. what the research says. Yeah. And and then probably <clears> just the <throat> other one, when you look into it, it often happens with other foot issues as well. And bunions um, and hematose are the two that seem to be prominent, bunions being the most prominent. And if you just go back to what we just said, if you're someone who has a bunion forming or a prominent bunion, you're probably someone who has less... Um, extensibility and movement variety through your big toe as one point which is important and then if that bunion's forming you're probably someone who also pronates quite a lot or yeah. a bit more than necessary for most activities and that's gonna again factor into that morton's neuroma yeah because the the alignment of your big toe actually plays a, a, a significant role in the function of your arch and the position of your arch and so that's why bunions will make it more, it's kind of like a negative cycle where the bunion starts forming and then you start to pronate even more, over pronate more. Um, but the same, it's uh, again, to sort of harp on it, um, the same effect happens with narrow shoes. So if you're in narrow shoes, that disrupts the alignment of your big toe. And then that will also promote more of that over pronation or, or being stuck in that pronation position, pronated yeah. position. I think, I think, to be honest, like, again, through everything I found, that was really it. Those are, like, the biggest parts that can cause it. When going deeper, and, and these are a lot less likely causes, but if you get a fracture of a metatarsal, if you have a Liz Frank injury, which is, again, uh, fracturing and change of certain bones in your foot, or there were some other, like, you know, sort of strains that did pop up randomly, like, let's say you have a, a tibialis posterior issue, perineal um, longus issue, or if you've just, you know hurt your foot just because of the way that you change your movement it does happen it can mm. help contribute to a morton's neuroma but it's not again what's written as the common um right. reason reasons and or problems that lead to a morton's neuroma because yeah it just wouldn't be as as common and i guess part of that might be like you alluded to with the bunions um if you're because when we walk and run we really should be pushing off primarily through that big toe obviously the other toes extend as well but if you've had some kind of injury or you've got a bunion developing then that can force the load or like the push off over to the other uh, to the outside of the foot closer to where you would develop those that morton's neuroma so um yeah injuries like that can play a role but either way this i guess the treatments pretty much end up being the same in for that so actually before we get into treatment i don't know if we completely explored the signs and symptoms of a morton's neuroma um, but obviously we mentioned that pain in the ball of the foot um, especially towards push-off um, but that can also be referred down to um, the toes as well so the thir- third and fourth toe um, and can also be accompanied by like a burning sensation tingling anytime we get kind of burning and tingling symptoms it does make us think okay well there's nerve involvement here some kind of nerve irritation um some people will describe it like feeling like you're walking on a stone or a marble Hmm. which would be pretty annoying and like watching people who have had it in clinic you can see that the moment they go to put pressure on that spot and everyone who's had one will you know appreciate this a lot more 
is just that you can't put pressure through it without it like lighting up and it feels like someone's flicking a switch it's like mm. there's no pain no pain push on it is a lot of pain which, yep. which is interesting um to witness because you know <clears> for a lot of other problems like the achilles or tbs posterior problems or any of those you can see that there's often some dull ache sometimes people with mortons just don't feel it until they just load it yeah yeah interesting yeah i think actually one thing um it's not really something that we could say as a cause but something to think about as a contributing factor is just general levels in of inflammation we kind of come back to this each each podcast um but your general health your your sleep quality and quantity your nutrition your stress how you manage your stress stress or how you perceive stress will all contribute to levels of inflammation in the body um so it's you know if you're struggling with a morton's neuroma in the long term what you obviously you need to address the mechanical issues, um, but also that just general health and systemic inflammation um, is worth addressing as well. Even if it even if it doesn't directly help your neuroma symptoms, um, it's still a good thing to do for yeah, overall health. Definitely, and like probably just delving into that more on that personal level again. Like a lot of people who experience pain, and let's just use Morton's neuroma in this example, like. Pain is not a bad thing, like we spoke about mm. in our previous podcast. Pain is just a signal from the body. But where it gets a bit more tricky is when you add that layer of psychology of it's not the pain that worries people. It's the, the fact that that pain is probably going to stop them from being able to walk or being able to run, which then yeah. sort of affects their identity as a person, particularly if you're a runner and you get one. It's like my whole identity is shifted because of this problem. And it's it gets a bit more layered than just this hurts. I need to mechanically change that. Um and then you layer in like the health habits. Again, all, all of the experiences that we talk about, all the, the, the pain experiences, they probably have the same things repetitively. Like if you had better underlying health and you had the right support networks and stuff, the experience of the pain itself is different. Yeah. Yeah, which is important to note because, yeah, there could be, and this, this happens a lot in the body, throughout the body, like say you've, you took a, an image of the body like an MRI or an ultrasound and you found evidence of thickening in a nerve or, or whatever, then sometimes that's related or sometimes that um, matches up with pain that you're experiencing and sometimes it doesn't. So your perception of pain isn't all down to what's happening structurally in the local area. Um, and there are a lot of those other factors that can contribute. So we've got podcasts, um, previous podcasts on sleep, on um, breath is another one, obviously, Tom's, Tom's very interested in. Uh, that affects every aspect of health. Um, sleep, breath, there's one on food, there's one on stress, um, and there's one on just the principles of rehab. So worth going back in and listening to those if you haven't already. Um, but aside from that, what's, what's some of the... Uh, we, we obviously like to break up treatments into active and passive approaches. We lean more towards an active approach for a long-term solution, but obviously passive approaches can be helpful in the, in the short term uh, in most cases or, or in some cases. So why don't we start with active approaches and then, and then we can delve into the passive. The, the top of the list of the active approach, I'm sure it's not gonna come as a surprise, is probably <laughs> choose different footwear. What? Oh, I know. No way. That. So yeah, like again, what we harped on for one third, 33% of people can alleviate their symptoms uh, often entirely by just changing the footwear. Yeah. So if it is that simple, and it's not always gonna be that simple for people, 
that's just a big like golden egg low hanging yeah, fruit just take that one and do it yeah um, particularly if you are experiencing mm-hmm. a problem and it doesn't need to mean that you need to get into a complete minimalist shoe mm. too there are a lot of great shoe options out there now that still come with padding that you know sort of abide by like the WTFF rule which James if you want to recite that one for yep. the audience yeah wide thin flat flexible yeah uh, actually, we've also been playing with a new mnemonic uh, of the, just the four Fs, which is flat, flexible, um, foot-shaped, yep. which is what we alluded to before, as in a wide toe box. The, the f- shape of the shoe should be widest at the toes, not at the ball of the foot, um, and certainly not at the heel. <laughs> um, and, and feel, as in how much feeling can you get through the shoe so that just is talking about the that's like the thinness of the sole yeah so yeah like you said you don't want to well you may not want to go straight into a purely like barefoot or minimalist shoe that is like super thin super um flat uh super flexible may not be the best why why certainly wider and flatter Mm. is a good goal Mm. um but it may not be jumping straight into like a vibram or a vivo barefoot um brands that you could look into as ones that are wider and flatter but not uh, but still have some cushioning and some level of rigidity uh brands like ultra uh, i think topo as well yeah. but um ultra is sort of one of the more more it's common one that ones I use the most for people um, yeah i think it's one one of the best points of sale for them i think is that it kind of looks like what you would deem a normal sort of shoe that is yeah resemble an event asics nike adidas like because again like we said before changing your shoe can sometimes be part of an identity shift for people and mm. it does create a lot less friction i found in the start and then as you go down the rabbit hole you, you just the journey is essentially eventually you probably get to a different bunch of shoes but it's a good entry shoe for sure yeah and it's depending on this like the other characteristics of your foot how strong and mobile it is then it may be actually a better option for you than just one of those um, purely minimalist shoes um but certainly that is that's got to be the best place to start for everyone yeah, really i think so <laughs> and then yeah so when we go down again re- go all the way back to what is the problem so it's going to be some compression slash irritation of a, a nerve that's running between the bones and particularly it hurts at push off. So what are, what can we do for those things? So one is just some general mobilizations of the foot. So whether it's of the toes, whether it's of the foot itself, whether it is just trigger pointing sort of the muscles around the foot to take on more pressure, those mobilization acts are in a sense a way for you to move your foot differently and to allow the sharing of load. So you don't just continue to load into that same spot. It's not always going to get rid of the, the full gamut of the pain experience in that spot. But if you can take, you know, a spot that's taking on 50% and causing it to flare up and drop it to 30 or 20%, it's just going to change the pain experience because there's less load going through there. Mm. And I think that's a really, it's a really simple one to start with too, whether it's like, you know, um, we always call it differently, but you know, hand foot exercises, monkey. Oh grip. yeah. Yep. Um, foot, hand, glove. Yeah human toe spreader basically weaving your fingers in between your toes as far as you can um because like we said or like we've been talking about this 
these symptoms are generally from compression of the nerve. So opening up that space between the digits can be really helpful. Mm. Um, obviously, toe spaces are a tool that could be helpful there. A lot of people find um, value in using those. Um, but you could also... Uh, I've seen people weave a sock in between their toes mm. to help provide some space if you don't want to buy toe spaces. Um, but just anything really to open up that area to re- relieve some of that compression of the nerve makes a lot of sense. And and some active exercises as well where you're like... Splaying the toes yeah. and opening them up. Toe piano, yeah. things like that. I think that sort of leads into the next point of like, if we know that one of the issues is potentially putting your foot into too much pronation and then the other potential issues is going into too much supination you're essentially looking at can i create the most sort of um, variability of movement through my foot and what i was really looking at is improve the way that your big toe moves seems to help quite a lot and the reason for that is when i think we spoke about on previous podcasts when you push through that big toe a the big toe is the biggest all the toes so it should take on more load B, you're going to then set up the chain of events that allows for the thing called the windlass mechanism, which Mm. is essentially the way that your foot creates a a rigid arch without using muscular effort. And you're going to be putting more force through that inside part of your foot up the big toe than onto the outside. And I think that's a really important point because if you can offload the third, fourth um, metatarsals by just learning to push through your big toe more, that's going to be huge. Yeah. And that's going to help to... Uh, change the way your foot's moving and give you more options going forward. Yeah. Um, and that can, that can be done in a whole host of ways. It can be as simple as just mobilizing the big toe up and down and going into, say, rocking positions, getting into some kneeling, doing some, like, squatting um, movements, like, on the beam, some lunging, some step-throughs. Like, there is a, a never-ending list of exercises mm. that can be done to improve that big toe flexibility and extension particularly. But starting where, you, again, your body's at, meeting it where it's at, and then working forward yeah, will probably harness, you know, a great deal of benefit through the outside of that foot. Yeah. And it, it is one of those things where if you've got a Morton's neuroma, you have very likely been in tight, stiff, narrow, rigid shoes for a long time. And so mobilizing the big toe can feel quite uncomfortable as well. And, and like Tom said, you need to be quite gradual with your approach. Don't just start stretching the hell out of this big toe that never works um you you want to you want to gently start mobilizing it and um you know just listen to your body along the way if you're getting a really really intense feeling of stretch or pinching in the big toe while you're moving and stretching it then just back off and and because really we're, we're trying to train the nervous system uh, like partly you're obviously mobilizing the structures but you're also trying to train the nervous system to feel comfortable in these new ranges of motion and if you just push as hard as you can from the get-go it's probably going to end up making you your your brain or your nervous system even more protective of that area and so um, just gently gently as you go play the long game and um, you'll be you will be surprised how quickly things can open up Mm. and can free up but uh, generally, it won't. It won't help to just sort of go super gung ho and and reef on. It almost toes. always backfires. Yeah, and it's like you, you speaking go, from experience. Oh yeah, we've, we've, we've tried it. <laughs> we've been there. Yeah. It, it's as simple as like you. You start slow before you go fast. You start in a comfortable range and do you know more narrow uh, range of motion before going to end of range and really taking it through range. And then you just start with less time, build up to more time. Like they're all simple principles. Mm. And when you just apply them like sort of all in one to like an exercise, to your point, I think the biggest key here is you're 
making yourself, your nervous system trust that you can put load through this tissue that hasn't been loaded previously, you will find it adapts far quicker than you trying to absolutely smash it yeah. as hard as you can once and go, man, that really hurt. I'll do that again. Yeah. It doesn't breed success. No, unfortunately no, not. No. Um, something else there as well, like you were saying, we want to improve the control of pronation especially so being able to go in and out of pronation so balancing exercises there could be a very helpful thing single leg balance or it might be tandem where you've got both feet on the ground but one is behind the other Um, just anything that you'll feel it in your foot once you're challenging your balance enough you'll feel your foot going into pronation and out of pronation in and out in and out it's like those little wobbles in the foot and that's basically what you're looking for if you balance it, if it's too easy, you're not going to be getting those wobbles. Like if you're just standing there mm. <laughs> normally, then obviously it's not challenging you. So, but if you're if you're too challenged, then you'll just keep going. You'll just keep sort of collapsing down or, or flattening down, and then and losing your balance. So you just want to find that right that happy medium. Well, that's one of the reasons the soulmate was invented, correct? It was because like yes. the beam itself that does a really good job at splaying the foot, and it's quite a good challenge but the a lot of people it's really hard to start there but yeah the soulmate sort of because of the way it's caved it still helps you display the foot but you can then get that sensation and again it doesn't even have to be the soulmate it could just be like a mound outside like a little bit of a hill yeah it could just be playing with your environment whatever you have it's just finding a way to open up that foot play with the motion and then increase the difficulty of that challenge yeah like I- a curved edge is helpful. And the, like you said, the beams are cylindrical, which is like really opens up the foot. Um, but it's also extremely hard to balance on and also can be a lot of load on the foot. So yeah, something like the Soulmate. Um, we're obviously big fans of the Soulmate here. Um, but yeah, like Tom said, if even if it's... Um, I'm trying to think of it. Yeah, like you could get um, half dome foam rollers. I think pretty mm. cheap. Um, they won't have the. They won't really have the same. Bit soft. It's a bit too. Bit too but like soft. If, if you've yeah. got a, if maybe you've progressed, then it's probably not a bad tool. Yeah. Um, what about the? We've actually got one sitting right oh, next to us. I've got about a second. <laughs> yeah. That that it could also be a good option. Um, Talk to us about that one. So, I can't remember the specific name of the tool. I just know it is for That's, your metatarsals. I'm going to look it up. Keep yeah. talking as yeah, I look so it up. Essentially, <laughs> it's, it's like a metatarsal pad that... Um, this one's from Blackboard. Yeah, uh, Blackboard. Essentially, what it is, it's sort of r- highest rise in the middle and then tapers off on the sides. And when you put it under your metatarsals or those long bones of your foot, it helps display them out. And just playing with it before, really to try and get that comparison and sort of see what we both thought about it. You find that this hits differently than just like the the cork ball, which does a great job. But this one, just because of its narrow edges, it really gets in and helps. It feels like it's almost mobilizing the metatarsals and sort of doing some trigger points slash soft tissue work on the the tissues, particularly like the the inner osseous um, type muscles. And again, it feels really nice. Um, I hadn't used it. I probably had it sitting there for over a year and never really gave it a crack until the last few weeks, diving into all these... um, pathologies and i've really enjoyed it to be honest i really felt like it's helped open up my foot it just in a different way than what i've been practicing which is also a factor in that i suppose but yeah so this again this kind of comes back to meeting your body where it's at like you can you can probably get a similar effect from a cork ball that we sell um but it's uh, it, that might be a little too intense for some people's feet. And this is a cool tool. I, I looked it up. It's called the, the, um, 
Meta Trigger. I just laughed because I did the same thing. Meta Trigger. Meta Trigger. We're not the Metaverse. No. no, Meta Trigger by Blackboard. So M E T A as in metatarsal and trigger as in like pull the trigger, mm. but it's it's talking about um, like trigger points. Mm. So something to look into. Um, but yeah, otherwise something like a soulmate or a cork ball, just something to help loosen up the points and in the foot. Um, and open up that space again between the metatarsals. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think they're the last sort of active approach that we've got written on there. And this sort of just goes back to <coughs> offloading in some sense, uh, the, the compressed nerve area, the irritated area. Uh, when, you're, when you push through in toe off or you, you go into a calf raise, you need the long toe tendons of both the big toe, the little toes to work. You need your tibialis posterior, your perineal <coughs> muscles to work to help lock in the foot. And then you need your calf muscles, the soleus and gastroc to all sort of function that motion. And that goes further up the chain as well. But what you find is if you can get the pads of your other toes to press down, which is what we'd call flexion, but it's not curling them like you would with a toe crunch where you're picking up a pair mm. of socks or something. It's toes are in a long position and you press down and then go through this calf raise you're learning to load the long tendons and if you can learn to load them and make them sort of more resilient or have better load tolerance it is another great way to start offloading the sore spot Mm -hmm. okay and i think that's another important point it sort of just goes to like if your foot has more option and the tissue can take on load in different ways it's probably going to be better for you when it comes to you doing the unconscious acts of life yeah so i think that's just an important that, little side piece yeah and that, that's a good point that kind of applies to pretty much everything to do with the body uh is just having more movement options is a really important thing and you know as it relates to this like you just said if if your only option is to um load onto those third and fourth metatarsals because you don't have enough big toe extension or because um, you don't have enough flexion strength, then that will be what your body defaults to. And yeah, it's just not enough variability for the body. Things are going to get irritated if you only have one way of moving. Um, It's similar to what we talk about with, you know, sitting for long periods of time. It's not so much that sitting itself is an issue. It's just that it, it, is too much of one thing or one static position, not enough movement and certainly not enough variability. So, so, we're, so we're sitting on the floor now. Sitting's yeah. great, but I think between both of us, we've moved a good 40 to 50 times. Just, yeah. Just playing with the Changing position. in different positions, yeah. So having having options is is really the key. There's, it's not so much about good or bad movements. It's more about how many options have you got and how well can you use them in different contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Passive approaches, again, these are things that can be helpful, but we sort of see them as things that you should do if these active approaches are not enough to help calm things down. Again, we always talk about calming things down, building things back up. If you're, if you're in just in excruciating pain all day, you can't get through your day, um, and these active approaches are either too irritating or just not enough to help calm things down, then that's where these more passive approaches are likely to help. Yeah, and can be done in conjunction. And same, uh, in same, conjunction same as well. Same thing, so. Yeah. So... What are they? What are they? Great question. (laughs) I think, yeah, probably the premise to all these is if you're seeing a therapist of any nature and they put you in this type of orthotic, either of the two that we talk about, your first question should be, what's the plan to get out of it? 
before yep. anything because again we use them sometimes as well they can be they can be very useful particularly to help change that discomfort but you need a plan to get out and if it's done in conjunction with exercise it's easier to make that pathway so yeah that's just the premise um but the the old school one the one that probably is most written about in there is the metatarsal pads mm-hmm. and essentially it's very similar to that um meta trigger sort of setup where it's a bit smaller in size but it's just a a pad a bit of a dome that goes under your metatarsals <laughs> and this probably depends on where the person feels the symptoms but it's designed to lift up the transverse arch or the arch across the foot and again that can be anywhere from where the metatarsals are and just playing with where it sort of offloads that nerve yeah um again knowing that it's the third and fourth and it often happens more like distally you're probably going to put it a little bit more distally to help offload and push but again um just watching my boss do a few i think it's sort of if you get the diagnosis right probably is very important there because you could just play with where you put that pad and it can be effective or not effective yeah um and that's just something you stick to an insole of yeah. issue basically. so often you can actually buy them from i think you can get them from like a chemist these days pretty easily off the shelf yeah um you can get more tailored ones as well if you need them but you just stick it on the the top of the insole is easier. Again, if you put it under the insole of your shoe, in, onto the shoe, not a problem, but you just find like the, the sole of the shoe as you slides around a bit can be a bit yeah. irritating. So um, something to be mindful of there. And again, its effectiveness seems to vary quite a bit um, from practical and personal experience. Look, sort of, I think it's how good can you apply it and is this the right uh, treatment modality for that person? Yeah. The, the second one I find far more interesting, um, and I'll just read it as it is. It's inner digital neuritis pads. It's a very mm-hmm. weird way of saying mm-hmm. offload the spot. But you have to imagine you have like the sole of your shoe, pull it out and put it on the bottom of your foot. And you're essentially cutting out this area that is under the third and fourth uh, metatarsal head. So if you see where your toe knuckles are and on the underside of that, on the bottom of your foot, you're cutting it out to allow them to sort of uh, hover. You're not putting weight through them because the weight should go through the first, second, and not so much the fifth, depending on how you design it. And it's just, again, it's going to encourage you to put more load through the big toe. So offloads that in some sense. As you go through toe off, that push off phase, which tends to be the most problematic, you're going to then offload that spot. So hopefully it's not triggering that pain uh, experience for you. And again, it's just offloading and, or changing mm-hmm. where you distribute the force, which is most of what the initial problem um, solving can be for people in acute pain yeah um, they seem to be a bit more effective because again a lot of the problems for Morton's neuroma tend to be down near that knuckle so if you can do that it probably is a bit more effective than a metatarsal pad but again I'm sure you'll find people who have used met pads many times with a lot of success so but if I had yeah. to bias one I'd pick the second one yeah and both of these options again they're not they're not something that you necessarily should have to do long term it's just it's just an offloading tool in the short term while you build things back up and calm things down yeah build things up (laughs) i'll get that written on my forehead um and again last sort of last resort options are things like injections into into the nerve space basically yeah i've never i've never sent anyone for one i don't know anyone who's had one um the research I've read wasn't super clear. Like anyone who gets a steroid injection often has decreases in pain. And if you have an anesthetic injection, you will have a decrease in pain. There <laughs> yeah. is zero doubt about it. It's just a matter of how long for, because that local anesthetic 
at least two, 30 minutes to two hours, you're going to feel pretty good in that spot, which can unfortunately be a bit of a problem because it sort of numbs the pain and doesn't address the issue that yeah. caused the problem. So I was going to say that's a, a, an important point is like the pain is there for a reason and that's because there's some issue with that area tolerating load and if you take away the signal then you might be more likely to load that area more than it's more than it can can take and then therefore you might do further injury or you might just end up you know in a similar position as you were before the injection with a similar amount of pain sometimes more speaking from experience here i've i've um i had injections into my knees when i was oh, must have been four or five years ago now um very long, long story, but uh, I, I ended up being like, wow, these injections, um, you know, it's it's good. They're feeling good. My knees are feeling good. And then I did some skipping, um, which I thought, you know, this, this would be okay. There's not too much flexion going here, the knees, which was my typical um, irritating movement. Uh, but it was enough to put me back in pain and the worst pain I'd ever had in the knees. So it's it's one of those things you... you it's not always good to block the signal. Sometimes if you absolutely have to, like you're abs- you like you're ab- you, you just, uh, <laughs> I think m- most of the time when you want to block the signal is when you're losing sleep um, and you're like really distressed by uh, extreme severe levels of pain. That might be where you, you need to look into that kind of thing, but it's very much last resort. Well, yeah, and I think, What's interesting is when you go into like, again, people have connective tissue disorders like Alice Dallas syndrome or mm. uh, Marfan's, like all those sorts of things where they experience uh, more commonly high levels of discomfort and pain just because of the way that their body's currently functioning. Even with those sorts of people, a really good practitioner, a practitioner base or like a sort of multidisciplinary group who can help you understand things and educate in a certain way. We know from neuroplasticity and the way the brain can change its interpretation of these signals um, and that all the pain science that's been done has been amazing on it you can change your mental and cognitive approach to discomfort and pain and that can help reduce the pain stuff so yeah. again just because you have an insult or injury to tissue does not mean that you will have pain we know that that's why you always got to remember that there is this whole other side to it we mm. again like most people probably talk a lot about the mechanics to things because it's an easy starting point but this is all underpinned by the first podcast of rehab principles and pain science yeah yeah and i think most people from experience most people can get a lot of um even short-term relief from some of those active approaches mm. that we mentioned at the top so um certainly very worth exploring those thoroughly before thinking about getting any kind of injection and that goes for surgery too as well um again avoid surgery at all costs if possible yeah. but sometimes it is necessary sometimes it's necessary sometimes it's great and mm. we're, yeah we're not the anti-surgery dudes but it's just very important to explore other options mm. first yeah <laughs> thoroughly um yeah, unless it's like an emergency. And that's probably the <laughs> if same you, thing. If you're dying from something and you need surgery, you don't have to explore other options. Yeah, <laughs> um, probably go straight to the ED. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in general, for any of these musculoskeletal conditions, then I think the, the prospect of surgery is kind of suggested or explored before someone has truly 
truly thoroughly explored the active approaches, which and I think is an I, issue. I think I mean, we say this every week too. Find the right practitioner for you. If you're finding that they're not having a, the desired effect that you're after or not able to communicate that, then again, ask. We can point you in the direction of someone in person. Alternatively, um, yeah, our telehealth sessions are online. So you know, there's always an option there as well to help guide you through some of your treatment journey. Yeah, feel free to reach out if you're struggling. But yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. Mm. And uh, we'll catch you on our next Welcome episode. Welcome to 2023. Yeah, <laughs> hope everyone's having a good year so far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for listening. Uh, catch ciao. you next time. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, join our brand new free community. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function and explore your body's potential with a community that's there to support you along the way. To join, just head to thefootcollective.com or you'll find the link in our show notes.